Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Terry Sherwood from Crush to Cellar. We're at Linfield University. It's April 13th, 2021. Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. Nice of you to invite me. Uh, first question for you, why wine? Well, I got into this more by accident than anything else. Um, I was working at uh, uh, Davidson Auto Parts at the time, and uh, due to computer upgrades and things like that, one of the gals there um, uh, lost part of her job. And so they took part of my job away from me and gave it to her. And then my boss at that time, uh, Ron Davison, uh, said, Terry, go out and find something to do. <laughs> so uh, at that time, I was delivering um, uh, argon and nitrogen uh, to uh, local wineries. And one of the wineries, uh, Panther Creek, Michael Stevenson, was down there at that point. And, you know, Delivering gas gets a little old after a while. There's got to be more to life than that. And so I finally asked him, you know, what else could I do for you? And he said, well, we could use fittings. So I said, well, what kind of fittings? And he told me, and so I went back to the office, and I went online, and I found a, a company that sold these kinds of fittings, not knowing what I was looking at or anything. And I got a catalog from them. Uh, the next week, I... Uh, took it to Michael and said, okay, circle what you'd like to see in McMinnville. And so he went through and he circled different items and I went back and then I found a, a distributor that would uh, uh, sell to me at a discount um, so I could sell it for approximately what people were getting out of California. Um, I have always tried to keep my pricing to a point of where uh, I'm competitive with California. I mean, there's no reason um, for them to spend a lot more money uh, to buy it from me. Mm -hmm. So I try to keep it as competitive as possible. Um, and that's kind of how it grew. You know, the first, uh, uh, the first year it was just a couple shelves in the back of the warehouse. Um, I remember the first shipment I got, I got this box that was about, oh, 18 inches by 18 inches by 18 inches. And there was like $2,000 worth of fittings in it and I just, I, I don't know if I have the stomach to spend this kind of money, you know, because it, it gets really expensive really quick. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, um, uh, the Davisons were uh, um, nice enough uh, to give me some leeway and to kind of let me take off with it. So um, the first year, I, uh, first year we just had fittings and valves. The next year I brought in hose, um, so we had kind of a, a combination of hose and fittings. Um, and at that point, I believe it was about that time that uh, uh, Earl from Abacello Winery came, uh, called up and wanted me to build some hoses. And I know he always remembers me building uh, hoses for him at the back dock of a auto parts store. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but you know, I was with him from the day that he started. And uh, uh, then 
couple years later, I ended up moving into a building next to it, uh, only because by that time we had gotten into cellar chemicals, which was a citric acid and uh, other cellar chemicals. At that time, the only place that there was that had it was Buchanan Cellars. Mm -hmm. And Buchanan wasn't really doing well with it. It just uh, uh, was not that their cup of tea. So I ended up buying their inventory and starting from there. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, same deal, I had no idea what people wanted. So uh, I went around and asked different wineries, okay, you know, what, what do you need for cellar chemicals? I have no idea what you're talking about. And I gave a list of this list of chemicals that uh, um, Buchanan Cellars had. And I said, okay, circle what you think I need here. And they went and circled what they need and then said, okay, but you don't have this and you don't have that. So same kind of deal. I went back and researched and uh, uh, looked for different distributors that uh, wanted to have um, some presence in, in Oregon. At that time, uh, Oregon was so insignificant to California, where most of these distributors are, that uh, um, they didn't want to have anything to do with this. I had troubles finding ones to sell to me with a reseller, um, with some sort of reseller discount. Um, some of them came back later and said, I wish we would have. <laughs> I wish we would have. But this thing just continued to grow and grow and grow until I finally uh, moved out of that building uh, into the building that the, uh, the winery supply uh, place is in, uh, in McMinnville Davis and Winery Supply. Um, that just continued to grow. I brought in tanks from Italy and uh, I think that's kind of one of the remarkable things uh, for me thinking I never would have thought I would go to, uh, to, to Europe at all. This wasn't even in my uh, game plan. Uh, it wasn't my game plan to go to a show in Italy and pick out equipment to import. Uh, but that's just the way um, it, it got laid out. And uh, now I've been uh, to show probably seven or eight different shows over there in, in Europe. And I've seen, you know, uh, uh, a dozen different countries that I would have never been able to if it wouldn't have been through this industry. Mm -hmm. um, which, like I say, I got in, I get in in the right time uh, by chance. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, by continuing to ask questions and uh, continuing to follow through with what uh, people wanted, I, I grew a clientele. Mm -hmm. And it got more and more, um, uh, the people became more dependent upon me. Mm -hmm. So uh, our relationships grew. Mm -hmm. And so rather than being a uh, customer supplier, I, we more or less became like uh, uh, friends. Mm -hmm. Most of us uh, uh, have really good relationships with one another. And I think that's kind of the most interesting part of this industry is that uh, people really do care about one another. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when a winemaker dies, uh, I remember when Jimmy Brooks died, a uh, handful of wineries said, hey, you know what, we got to continue his label. Mm -hmm. So they all chipped in and did work to be able to continue his label, and now his son is running it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of the neatest part of this whole industry is that uh, uh, people respect one another. Mm -hmm. What year was it when you 
kind of made your first, about those fittings, what, what, what was the year that you got? That would be 1996. 1996? Okay. Fortunately, I was able to have one, uh, uh, save one catalog <laughs> and talk about barbaric. It was, it was just a piece of paper with a, the building um, on it and then I cut out pictures out of catalogs and taped them together and made a copy of them. And, the customers were pleased. Mm -hmm. They had something, but they they actually knew that somebody was going to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And they'd had suppliers say to them they were going to get more interested in Oregon, mm -hmm. and things never happened. Mm -hmm. um, when I came along and did this, people got an understanding that I was going to make something happen. Mm -hmm. This wasn't just something, because I had nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had a good group of people, mm -hmm. so um, why, why change what you're doing? And then uh, we'll fast forward, oh, probably uh, about 10 years, and in uh, uh, 2014 I came to a realization that uh, it was time for me to, to move on. Um, it was something that was uh, inside of me that uh, uh, turning 60 is something that I needed to do for Terry. Mm -hmm. This was no longer about doing something for anybody else but Terry. So uh, I resigned from Davis and Auto Parts or Davis and Winery Supply in, uh, in November. I believe it was November of uh, 2014. And through the connections I'd made um, in California, uh, one of the companies has al had always told me that, you know, if you ever want to do something different, give us a call. And I went home after I gave my resignation and my wife looks at me and says, what did you do? <laughs> you had a job. And I said, oh, this is something that I needed to do. And I had, I had some of my suppliers down in California said, I have your back. Mm -hmm. So uh, Zach Scott at Scott Laboratories along with uh, his uh, uh, cousin Alex and uncle uh, came to me and said, okay, let's set up a corporation. So in 2015, uh, Crush the Cellar LLC was, uh, was formed. Uh, didn't have a building, didn't have a phone number, had a registered name. Um, at that time, the only phone number I had was my cell phone. <laughs> And people are still calling me on it, and that's been that's been uh, you know six seven years. I'd hope they had lost it by now, but uh, um, that was something that I really needed to do. And God must have been behind this somehow. Um, things fell into place too easily. Uh, trying to find a building mm -hmm. is almost next to impossible for what you're trying to do. Uh, within a month, we had found a building and we had secured the lease on it. Everything went like that. So we had the building and uh, we got the building, I think it was in either February or March of 2015. Mm -hmm. And we were open, ready to sell in June. So. Uh, uh, at that point, uh, one, of the, one of the things that I wanted to do was to incorporate some of my family. Mm -hmm. uh, the wine industry is very family oriented if you look at a lot of the wineries in Oregon. Um, so I, uh, I got my son to come along, come board. So uh, Tyler started with me in 2015. 
And then shortly later, we hired uh, um, one of my one of the proudest uh, achievements that I've had is being able to find someone like Danielle to help me out. Because uh, you know you don't find people like that off the street with that kind of passion. Uh, my son, he had the passion, and he knew it was part of my family. So you know he had to he had to uh, perform. But <laughs> Danielle didn't have to. You know she chose to. So it was a real excellent find. In fact, I just got a uh, uh, email from LinkedIn today, and today is her sixth year anniversary with with me at Crusher Seller. So. Um, congratulations. <laughs> uh, so, you know, this just continued to grow and um, one of the things was that most of the wineries that I'd done business with followed me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was the key to all the hard work that I'd done over the 10 plus years before. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were concerned to start with, you know, how many of these people were, were going to follow you, how many weren't, you know, this industry is really expensive. Um, a new building isn't cheap, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, just being an LLC by yourself, uh, trying to find a way to have group health care and all these kinds of things were difficult, but everything fell into place. Everything fell into place and within a couple of years, you know, I was, I was at or above where I was at the peak at, um, um, at my uh, other employer. Mm -hmm. So. Um, then what is it? And then I was able to have my wife come in. And my wife comes in, she uh, does delivery driving. Mm -hmm. So she makes deliveries to, uh, particularly down south, she goes as far as uh, uh, two town cider house in, in Corvallis. Mm -hmm. But she'll catch everyone 99 going south, plus uh, 22 going towards the coast. So she'll catch that Banduzer, Chateau uh, Bianca, mm -hmm. Viola Hills, all that kind of area on her way. Um, and then in 2018, my daughter was my uh, one of my daughters was looking for a part-time job. She uh, just graduated from dental school, and uh, as a dental assistant, and but it was only part-time. And so we hired her. Um, I think it was like 20 hours a week, just so that she had enough, and she got a taste of it. And. Uh, uh, she actually liked working with the wine industry more and she liked looking in people's mouths. <laughs> and uh, so uh, she came on board in 2018. So uh, right now there's uh, myself, Danielle, Tyler, and Kaylee working at the store, uh, all full-time employees. And uh, uh, would have never thought, would have never thought I'd been in this uh, in 2015, or in 1996, mm -hmm. this was not even in the cards. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So I got a lot of questions about the, 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 the kind of intervening years there, but I want to back up a second. And we mentioned kind of before the interview talking about sort of pre-wine. So tell us about uh, growing up and, and, and education and, and, and kind of the work you were doing before you started working in the industry. Okay. Well, I was uh, born and raised in McMinnville. Um, was born in 1954. You know, I remember... Uh, Coming to the high or coming to this college to watch the basketball and football games. In fact, at that time, my dad was actually uh, refereeing mm -hmm. some of the football games. Uh, my dad was a uh, educator educator with the uh, McMinnville School District. Um, as a matter of fact, he was my principal <laughs> in junior high. 
um, which was fun. <laughs> you know, back in those days, you got spanks for uh, inappropriate behavior, and so I would get one at school, and then I'd get one at home. Uh, there was no hiding it. Uh, in fact, he had my wife as a as a student. He had my father-in-law as a student. So. Um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, how all these interconnections mm -hmm. can can uh, um, uh, can connect with one another. Uh, I graduated in 1972, and at that point, uh, um, I got a summer job, and then I uh, went to uh, Oregon State for the for my freshman year. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, being a child of the 70s, it wasn't the easiest time for me to think about going and sitting at school again. I just, my, my mind was not there at that point. Uh, so at that, uh, that summer, I ended up uh, finding a job at uh, a mobile home factory in McMinnville. Mm -hmm. So uh, I worked uh, at uh, Rex Mobile Homes from 1970, was it 1973 through 1983 when they went bankrupt. At that time, you know, I found that uh, hard work and uh, learning things can get you a long way in this world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to ask questions. You uh, don't need to pretend you think you know it all. Um, so I ended up in those years going from just unloading boxcars to my final two years there, I was assistant purchasing and, and receiving. Mm -hmm. So um, I was able to work my way up uh, as far as probably I was going to at that, uh, um, at that job uh, until they went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And that was like in 1983, I think that's when they had the uh, housing downturn and things kind of went sideways. So at that point, um, me being a uh, work-driven person, I decided that I needed to get a job at, no matter what it was. So I ended up being the 13th person hired at Kmart when they opened. I just had, I had to have a job. Mm -hmm. And even though the job paid me less than unemployment, I just felt that I needed to. Mm -hmm. And so I was there for, I think, nine months. Uh, I don't know how the family and I survived. You know, at that point I had three kids and trying to live off of, I think I was making 425 or 430 an hour, how I did it. Um, but we, we survived. They tried to keep me there by uh, um, letting me pick my own schedule and by giving me a nickel a week to raises, because that's all they could give. So, uh, still a nickel week, it took a long time. And uh, I've never felt that I needed to be treated special. Mm -hmm. And so when they got to a point of where they made me assistant manager and said, you pick your schedule, I thought to myself, you know, you can't, you can't treat me any different than anybody else. If you're gonna let me pick mine, um, you're, you're gonna let the other people do theirs. And so I knew that wasn't gonna work. So <laughs> I left there and I, I started at, uh, a job uh, that I'd had during, just before I went to college at Copeland Lumber, and that's where the granary district is right mm -hmm. now. In fact, it's in the, the old grain station building that used to be a lumber, uh, Copeland Lumber. And uh, I worked there in the, the summer before I went to college. Well, I started back there, I think it was probably like in 1985. 
and uh, I liked working with lumber. Uh, I liked working with numbers, so they were teaching me how to do estimates and uh, how to go off floor plans. And you know, I was always interested um, in that. And uh, finally, we it came to a point where it got to a disagreement in between me and management, and uh, uh, I was told to go and pick up my check at the bank. So I went home devastated because what I did I thought was right and they didn't agree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I went home and I'm looking at my wife and I'm thinking, oh God, what am I going to do now? Um, through connections through Mobile Home Factory, there was a gentleman, um, his name's Jim Beard. He worked for Davison uh, uh, Industrial Supply at the time. And him and I had done a lot of work because he was bringing stuff into the mobile home factory and I was the one receiving it and, and okaying it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he had heard that I needed a job and he said, you know what? I think we got a place for you. So um, thanks to Jim Beard, I was able to, to get the start in all of this, uh, um, this whole adventure with the, the, with the wine industry mm -hmm. between him getting me into Davison to start with, and then Ron, Tom, uh, Davison uh, giving me the support and backing to continue doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. My mom was a my mom was a was a banker, so she worked at the U.S. Bank. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and that's one of the things my dad has always told me. As friends of his asked, "How did you get all your kids to uh, to uh, work so hard?" Uh, my brother's a teacher. My sister works for, uh, has worked for Microsoft. She's worked for Apple. She's worked for uh, Hewlett Packard. Mm -hmm. She does all that kind of stuff. My uh, my littlest brother is the uh, manager uh, for the engineering department here in City of McMinnville. Mm -hmm. So uh, he says, I don't know what I did. Well, I, I I really know what he did. He showed us work ethic, mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the things that's kind of missing these days. Uh, my dad was a was a teacher and and drove picking buses in the summer. Uh, I remember my mom taking me out to the berry fields to pick, mm -hmm. so for extra money they rake walnuts, uh, you know whatever it took to make the family uh, survive. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I got this drive of of uh, trying to, to succeed, mm -hmm. try to make something of yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the grace of God, I was able to. Um, like I say, my wife was, uh, was born and raised in McMinnville also. So we got married in 1975. And uh, so that puts it number 46. So, and that's kind of a, a record too. It's got a lot of white <laughs> anniversaries. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I'm curious. You you, you you talk about kind of sort of falling into the industry completely by accident. I'm, I'm curious. Did you have a perception growing up in the area of the wine industry? Did you have any kind of knowledge of it or, or interest in it? No, you know, and even when I first started uh, getting into it, uh, people knew Rexhale, mm -hmm. people knew Soko Blosser. Um, after that, they really got, you know, they knew Argyles. Mm -hmm. um, after that, they got pretty skimpy. Mm -hmm. You didn't know much more, or I didn't know much more about it. But as I dug into it, then all of a sudden I came across all these others that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, you mentioned Myron, mm -hmm. well, Amity. Mm -hmm. uh, they were one of my, probably my first three or four accounts. Mm -hmm. um, I never hardly met Myron. But, uh, you know, I always met his winemaker. 
and his winemaker at the time was uh, Tad Seastat, and uh, he formed Ramson Spirits, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, now sold and is retired. Mm -hmm. So uh, um, I didn't know Ken Ryan. I didn't know Kristam. Uh, uh, I didn't know Witness Tree. You know, there were just there was there was hundreds of them that I'd never even heard of. Mm -hmm. Never even heard of. So you know, that was kind of what I went after first uh, was the small guy because the small guys usually were the ones that had the most troubles getting stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, their pocketbooks weren't real big. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the contacts to get uh, uh, stuff out of California. So uh, they were the ones who needed the most help. Mm -hmm. So after Panther Creek, then it was, um, you know, Ken Wright, and then it was uh, 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 Ransom Spirits, and it just went on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, I would I would have never guessed when I was growing up that wine industry would be anything in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And that's even going back into when I was in my my thirties. Mm -hmm. I would have never thought. Mm -hmm. And now I look at it now, and it's like. You know, we're lucky we have you around. You know, it's a good industry for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the, the kind of the first things were, were gases and fittings. I'm curious, what were, the, what were the other things that were missing? What were the other things that in the early days that the industry needed that they couldn't get in Oregon? Right, I did skip out one part. Um, after I brought in the hose and fittings and the cellar chemicals, mm -hmm. then it was time to step up and start doing the fermentation products. Mm -hmm. So at that time, um, that was probably my first introduction to uh, uh, Scott Laboratories, because um, they, um, they are one of the biggest uh, distributors for mm -hmm. uh, wine industry products um, in the nation. And uh, I got with them. Um, their sales, outside salesman for Oregon at that point uh, was really excited to see me because it uh, uh, gave him product in Oregon. Mm -hmm. It's hard to go and sell things off of a picture. So he backed uh, uh, me getting a discount and so we started bringing in lab supplies, or I mean we started bringing in the fermentation supplies. And that went along with not only the, the Scott Lab products but uh, uh, Guzmer products and uh, several other Lafort. Um, they all came in mm -hmm. uh, because I needed a rounded por portfolio. Uh, at that time, the Oregon wine industry wasn't big enough to be able to focus on one thing. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to keep doors open just doing fittings or just doing hose. Um, you need to have a well-rounded program. Mm -hmm. So the fermentation products came next and then it was followed by um, um, labware. So it was different uh, lab chemicals to do analysis, it was uh, beakers, it was uh, whatever they needed um, uh, to do their testing. Mm -hmm. Same kind of deal, I had no idea. So, but I had a lot of people that were eager to help me at this point because you know, they didn't want to have to go online and order two big beakers. They, mm -hmm. Excuse me, they wanted to walk down and uh, uh, get them off the shelf. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you know, I had a fairly well-rounded program in that it, it uh, covered things that they used every day, 12 months a year. Because uh, this industry is very cyclical mm -hmm. and traditionally our busiest time is uh, late June through uh, November. Mm -hmm. And after that it just dies. It just dies. And that was, that was a hard thing for me. You know, I'd be uh, really, really hustling those months, and then all of a sudden, just like somebody turned the light off, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, uh, 
I, I as an Oregonian, suffer from uh, daylight uh, depression as it is. So, you know, when, when they change the time and it gets dark and the phones quit ringing, mm -hmm. uh, it was difficult to, to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, but by the time I got to the point of having uh, all these products and all of a sudden I found, you know, people were are filtering uh, in December or in November or, you know, whenever they're doing these different things. Because I, I forgot that I brought in a line of uh, um, filters. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that kind of fulfilled that thing. And that was the big thing is what do I need to do to be able to keep this thing afloat for 12 months? Mm -hmm. Um, because I can employ myself, but I'd never be able to afford uh, buying other people mm -hmm. uh, or paying other people. Um, and one of the thoughts that I had is how do I, how do I uh, generate enough money to pay for people? Um, I came up with the idea of dry ice. Mm -hmm. And dry ice is uh, uh, only used during a, about a two-month period. And uh, they use a lot of it. And uh, I figured, you know what, if I can get in the dry eye bus business, I could probably hire someone to help me during harvest. Mm -hmm. So uh, I found a distributor who said, yeah, you can do dry ice for us. So I think the first year I did 140,000 pounds. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, but that, that was another thing that I brought in just to pay for employees. Mm -hmm. Um, it's hard enough to sit there by yourself, and it's hard enough to do all the work by yourself, so how do I justify bringing someone else in? Mm -hmm. um, I look at it now, and how, how would I ever thought I'd have four? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned one of the issues for you was not, not really knowing when any, what, what was needed and having, mm -hmm. to, having to hear from the industry. So tell me about that evolution for you in terms of as they were asking for more and, and different things and for more parts of the year and for more more styles of winemaking, was it, was it difficult for you to find what people, what people needed or were you able to kind of find the supplies as people, as the demand grew and as, as your kind of, as the, 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 the breadth grew? Well, I was able to, I was definitely at that point was able to uh, almost find anything a person wanted. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of the people have stuck with me is because uh, I think I get all the calls for all the oddball stuff you could ever think of. And uh, sometimes I, I waste hours and hours and hours on something that I make 50 cents on. But at the end of the day, I get it back on everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the winemakers wine are usually the ones that help me out on most of that. Mm -hmm. And after that, it gets into uh, the, the suppliers themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay, this, this customer is trying to do this. What does he need to do this? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I've, never, I've never pretended that I know anything about winemaking. And I make it up front that I'm not a winemaker. I can find somebody who can tell you how to make wine. I can tell you where to, uh, where to go to get your wine analyzed. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm not going to give you recommendations. But I will find people who will. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the things that I, that I did uh, skip um, that I forgot about was I think it was probably about 19 or about in uh, 2001, 2002, someplace in there. Um, we were getting ready to start the get in the new building at, at, at uh, Davis Winery Supply, 
And I was at the, uh, the Oregon Wine Show, which at that point was Grape Day down in Corvallis. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there were five vendors at that time. Uh, there's over 200 now, so you can tell how much more excited California is in Oregon now. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was sitting down talking to this, this lady, and I said, you know what? I'm looking at well, what else we could do to bring people in the door. And uh, it happened to be a, a salesperson for Vinquery, which happened to be one of, the, uh, one of the five vendors that was there. And, you know, she thought, well, she kind of gave me the uh, uh, feeling that, no, it probably, probably isn't what we want to do. Mm -hmm. But someone else heard it. And so it wasn't more than a week later I get a call from a company called DTS Laboratories out of California. And they said, hey, you know what, I heard you were interested in doing this. Uh, who do I need to talk to? because I'd like to put a satellite lab up here. So uh, at that point, uh, it rounded our program even more. Not only could you get everything you needed to make your wine, uh, but also if you had issues or you needed special testing done, uh, it could be brought in at the same time. Uh, and that got back into how do I generate um, foot traffic? Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that uh, um, grocery stores do all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I had to figure out ways to bring people in. Mm -hmm. And that was just a, a, another way uh, to bring people in. So in your estimation, what, what, what's the, what are the biggest changes in what, your, what you supply from, from when you got, kind of got started to now? What are, the, what are the things that you've added over the years or that winemakers have started asking for? Uh, and, you've had, and, and maybe some of the things you've had a, a tougher time finding for people. Well, I haven't had too much problem finding things. Um, I think the big thing for me is the volume that they're using now. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, uh, you know, I, I have no idea how much Rex Hill was making at that point, but since A to Z bought them, you know, what is it, a million cases now? I don't know, it's a ton. Half a it's million, a ton. something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a lot. And there wasn't anything like that mm -hmm. in Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, by the time you look at that, and the 12th of Maple, Northwest Wine Company, and um, you know, there's some big players out mm -hmm. there, Union Wine Company. And so the volumes was, is the big thing. Mm -hmm. And trying to make sure I have enough to satisfy those volumes. Mm -hmm. um, there have been some you know, issues from time to time with shipping, um, stuff like that, but normally uh, uh, things haven't changed. Mm -hmm. uh, the one thing is, is the volume's gotten so big, a lot of things uh, I don't even touch. I just have them shipped direct from the factory. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of nice mm -hmm. when I don't have to touch it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, but no, not a lot of things have changed as far as the, uh, um, the types of things I'm selling is basically the volumes that we're doing and I, I think it goes right along with the size of the wineries in the, in the state is that uh, as they keep getting bigger and bigger I've got to have more and more mm -hmm. and they're going to need more and more. Mm -hmm. So obviously the, the industry has grown as we talked about uh, significantly since you, since you started. Uh, in the early days it sounds like you were mostly word of mouth. You, you met people and they introduced other people and, and they were, you know, tell me about the, the kind of growth of relationships for you and how many, how many wineries you work with and, and where the new relationships come from. Are they people that are, are hearing about you and coming to you? Or are they people that you seek out and, and build relationships with? How does the kind of new 
new relationship. Well, the the old relationships uh, realistically were mostly word by mouth, mm -hmm. uh, word of mouth. Um, Rob Stewart was one of my first customers, and uh, when he was up at Erath, mm -hmm. when Erath was up on the hill, um, of course, Tad Seastat, Ken Wright, uh, all these people that I went out and I physically went out and talked to them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was delivering gas. Sometimes it was just making a cold call. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember going into uh, Lang's and uh, uh, went in, the only thing that was open was a tasting room. And uh, uh, a lot of these wineries had never seen an outside salesman. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it was kind of a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. It finally got to a side, uh, I had enough customers, it finally got to a point of I had to ask my key customers, which would you rather have me do? Come by and visit you or be there at the phone? Mm -hmm. And uh, most generally, most of them say, I don't want to see you, I don't want you there at the phone. <laughs> you know, because when I need something, I need, I need to know you're going to be able to do it. And mm -hmm. you can't do it when you're, uh, mm -hmm. when you're out there. Um, you know, some of the, uh, Sam Tannehill was at uh, uh, Archery Summit at the time. Mm -hmm. And I remember when they first started, and I made deliveries up to them when they first started. Uh, I remember going up into uh, uh, Domain Druin, and there wasn't anybody in the in the whole building except for the guy in the cellar. And I don't know how he'd do that. I mean, that's a big building to be there by yourself. Uh, I can remember going uh, into Ken Wright's, and Ken at that point was uh, I was getting gas from him, and at that point he was making Domain Serene's wine in the old glove factory. And I was in walking around in there, and I saw this uh, drawing that uh, um, of this kind of oddball-looking building, <laughs> and uh, it was something that uh, uh, Tony Reinders, which is his winemaker uh, at that point, uh, and the owners of Domain Serene had been drawing up on this this uh, uh, big mansion they were building up on the hill, and I'm just scratching my head. I said, "Wow." This is really becoming something now. You know, these aren't pole barns. Because, you know, a lot of them were just, you know, something. Uh, it's a step up from the garage. Uh, now it really became something. Um, I remember when uh, uh, Sam and Sam Tannehill and, and Cheryl Francis decided uh, uh, to make a wine label on their own, and they made it up in the Eola Hills. I, I think it was at the old uh, Cuneo um, place. Um, they decided they were going to um, make wine there, and they started looking at all the expenditures as far as, wow, I got to buy a press, I got to buy a crusher to stammer, I got to buy this. That's a lot of money, but look at all this juice that's out there in the market. There's a lot of juice. Well, maybe we ought to think about um, buying bulk juices and doing our own custom blends. And I forgot how many hundred cases they did. It wasn't very much. It was a couple thousand cases, I think, in the first year. Uh, and now uh, A to Z is where it's at. So same kind of deal, taking a little bit of initiative and seeing what's going on in the world uh, and a little hard work uh, can reap some benefits if, you're, if you really put the time into it. And that's one of the things that I try to instill on my kids is that you know, um, there's a lot of things out there. Um, you just got to figure out something you're passionate about and go after it. So you talked about a lot, of, a lot of people who have played big roles in, in Oregon wine as people you've had relationships with. Obviously, an interesting industry because people, uh, need, when they need things, they need them, right? Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, they need, they need you to be there. So tell me about um, 
building up that kind of trust and how you built relationships with all these different clients and, and what it was that they you wanted them to know about you what, what what was it you wanted to portray as what is what is Terry and what, why, why would you why would you come to me right well you know I'm very service oriented and I think that's the big deal is that uh, um, I made sure my customers knew I was there for them uh, I followed up people ask me about uh, a different product if I didn't know where it was, I told them I'd find it. Uh, follow up by a call back. Yes, I was able to find it. No, I have no idea where that one came from. Um, but that, that was the big deal, is for just to be upfront and honest with people. I'm not a winemaker. Um, I'm here to support you in your industry. Um, if you give me a hand in building this, I can give you something that is, uh, there isn't another one in the world. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, and I'm almost sure on this one, there isn't another uh, facility like Crush a Cellar in the nation. And uh, uh, that's saying quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, the big deal is the concentration. Uh, there, you couldn't do it down in California. Um, the wineries are very spread apart. Traffic's really difficult. And the wineries are big enough to where you could focus on nothing but hose, or you could focus on nothing but filtration supplies. Mm. Oregon wine industry isn't that way. Mm -hmm. They're all really predominantly small. And by being in uh, Newburgh or McMinnville at the time, we were in the center of where most of the wine was getting made. And so by portraying myself as a person who really cared, really wanted to get the job done for them, following through, and making that personal contact, uh, I was able to, to get their trust mm -hmm. because they're, they were putting their trust in their livelihood in what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but over time, a little bit at a time, mm -hmm. hey, he came through again, he came through again. And, it, and then they would tell someone else, mm -hmm. you really need to get your stuff from Terry. And you get to a point where we need to buy local also. So that whole, whole scenario came in that uh, why am I sending my money down to California to pay their road tax when I could pay Terry? Mm -hmm. And they'd fix my road, or uh, maybe fix my road. Uh, <laughs> um, or, you know, or fix our schools. Mm -hmm. I wish it was opening the schools, but <laughs> right now. But that, that's the way they started thinking. So it, it became that uh, by Oregon first type scenario at that mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. But there were, there were dozens and dozens of winemakers uh, who helped me through this. Um, I remember Jimmy Brooks was one of the ones I went with uh, uh, Jimmy to Europe I think three times. He went as our interpreter because he knew all the languages and we we didn't know nothing. You know, don't speak French to me, don't speak Italian. He knew that, he knew German, you know, so it didn't matter where we went. Um, we were able to, to get through. So um, that was probably one of my saddest days. Um, that I experienced in, in this industry. Um, another one was Bob McRitchie when he passed, and I know you and I had talked about uh, him in the past. He was, to me, he was kind of like a, a mentor to me. Mm -hmm. um, I delivered gas to him, and I told him what I was doing. Uh, he would give me ideas of things to bring in. Uh, at that point, he told me, I don't think the Oregon wine industry is ever going to get big enough 
to be able to support a business like you. Uh, I look back now and uh, he was just like I was at that point. Had no idea what was going to, uh, what was going to transpire. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's happening more and more every day. Um, some of it not, for me personally, um, some of it's not quite as, uh, um, I'm, I, some of them I'm losing that one-on-one -on -one contact with because they're getting bought out by Mm -hmm. uh, other people, um, you know, the first one with Jackson family mm -hmm. uh, moving in, and uh, Willow Kinsey was one of my first accounts, and uh, I remember setting up uh, uh, Grand Moraine, you know, uh, Penner Ash had been one of my accounts all those years, and of course the new one in, mm -hmm. at the airport. Mm -hmm. um, but after seeing what they do, how they operate, and most of the people that work at there were Oregon people. Mm -hmm. They didn't say, okay, hey, you, you guys don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, we're gonna bring someone in from California. So that's one of the good signs of a lot of these takeovers is that uh, they, they keep the personnel there. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, li the latest one is Ponzi getting, mm -hmm. getting bought. And I, I am relieved that um, Luis is still gonna be the, the uh, winemaker, at least for the time being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, these are all changes that, that are going to uh, eventually going to happen. The um, hard part for me is that a lot of the people that were that I am losing are people that I founded Crush the Cellar for to begin with, mm -hmm. which was a small one. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the pandemic of last year, and then of course the fires we had, it made it really difficult for those small boutique wineries. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I'm hoping that most of them can make it through this and that they have clientele like what I had. Because mm -hmm. I know I've talked to a few winemakers and they had actually had clientele that, that uh, uh, stuck with them, mm -hmm. said that they would be patient. I've talked to winemakers who said that they talked to their growers and they said, hey, you know what? I know you had a tough, and it was tough on us too. So let's come to some sort of agreement so both of us can survive. Mm -hmm. Because you know, if the grape growers go, <laughs> it'd be really difficult to make wine. <laughs> really difficult. So, um, so that, that 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 cohesiveness of the unit is still there, mm -hmm. um, which is probably for me the most important part. Mm -hmm. uh, I do this because I enjoy it, and I enjoy the people I work with. Uh, it's not so much about the money anymore. It is about uh, fulfilling the customer's need, and it always has to be service-related, because mm -hmm. um, that's all anybody has anymore. You can buy anything you want online, anything. Mm -hmm. But you can't come and pick it up at the store and shake my hand. <laughs> you mentioned the uniqueness of, of Crush to Seller. Uh, tell me about, as you were getting it started, what did, what did you envision it being, and in and, and, and what way different than what you had done before? And, and you mentioned everything kind of coming together fairly easily. Tell me about that process from like idea of Crush to Seller to actually opening the doors. Well, you know, I had no idea where I was going to start with. No idea. I had no idea that this was even going to take off like this. Um, fortunately, with Crush to Seller, I had already built one because I'd already built uh, uh, my previous employer. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty easy to know where to go, what mistakes not to make. 
how much room we really needed. Mm -hmm. uh, I know when we first looked at the building, uh, um, my uh, partner in this said, you know what, God, this is way too big of a building. You know, 13,000 square feet, you know, that's bigger than what you had to start with. And, uh, but it's perfect right where we need it. Mm -hmm. So we ended up getting it, uh, um, it used to be an old farm grow store in, in Newburgh, and then it went to a wood floor place. But it's right there. Uh, we got uh, 99 access both sides, mm -hmm. and uh, 214 is just down the road. So, you know, the, good location. But the big deal was is that on the second one was knowing what I needed, where to go, and where to get. Mm -hmm. The other one was still by chance. Mm -hmm. What do I need? Tell me, because I still had no uh, vision of where this was going to go, because it just con continued to evolve. Mm -hmm. And it still is continuing to evolve because winemakers' ideas change, uh, products change. Um, in order to make things grow, you need to find new opportunities. I know that's one of the things that um, you know we're taking a look at now. Is there isn't a lot of uh, uh, more stuff I can do in my local area. What else can I do in my local area in order to continue to grow? Um, so we're, we're taking a look at different things. Um, nothing, nothing finalized, but for us the big thing is gonna be uh, internet. Mm -hmm. The e-commerce. Uh, e mm -hmm. uh, we're beginning to get more and more traffic on it. Uh, just like I said, I didn't know there were that many small wineries uh, in Oregon. Uh, I had no idea how many of them were in the world or in the nation, because we're getting new ones every day, new ones every day. So for us, the biggest growth is going to be in that, in that uh, online commerce, and that where you have uh, your products online and uh, people from all over the nation can get it and still be able to uh, get everything at one place. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, there aren't too many places that will have uh, both the Lallemand product, the Lafort product, and the Guzmer product in, in one facility. Uh, I'm the only Lallemand uh, distributor besides Scott Laboratories in uh, the United States. So by the time you start taking these things out, uh, there isn't another one like us. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've never got to a point where I want to start thinking, uh, you have to deal with me. But uh, at, at, at some point, that happens. You get to a point of where um, if you want this product, there's only one place you can get it. And I remember moving into, uh, when we first moved into uh, Crush the Cellar, one of the big problems we had was uh, um, some of my vendors were a little, little concerned about my partnerships. Um, I know that uh, um, my backer was, was uh, the Scott family, mm -hmm. and of course they owned Scott Laboratories, and they were Lallemont at that point. Um, the Fort people were a little edgy. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if I want to sell to you, mm -hmm. because you're part of the Scott family, or you're part of the Lallemont family. And uh, I must have been on the phone with uh, France every day for two weeks. Just say, hey, you know me. I am not a winemaker. I'm not going to tell people not to use your product. And it went on like that and like that. They came and flew in and visited me. They came up from California and visited me. And they're just kind of, 
well, I don't know. And finally they said, you know, I got to take Terry by face value. He told me that that's the way it's going to be, so we'll go ahead and stick with him. Uh, unfortunately, Guzmer wasn't. And uh, it took, I think, two years. And finally, Guzmer said, you know what? Uh, we lost way too much not having you helping us out here, so uh, we're going to open the door to you. But that was a big thing, you know. Um, people don't want uh, somebody taking their business away, and they were concerned that uh, when someone came in, they were looking for this product, I'd just say, hey, you know what? Use this one instead. Mm -hmm. But Crush the Cellar was always formed, and even when I was at Davison's, it was formed to a point of where we are not brand specific. We want to get you what you want, not what I want to sell you. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what saved both of those uh, at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And of course, same deal. You can't, you can't make a living just on one of them. Granted, Lafort and Lallemand are the biggest percentage uh, of the fermentation products uh, sold, but there's a, still a pretty good percentage of other things uh, that are out there um, that you can get that just grows your customer base. You mentioned earlier that the, the travel abroad, the, 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 trips, the trips to Europe to, to for, for, for looking for materials. Uh, I'm curious, what, what, what prompted those trips for you? What, what made you think you needed to go? And, and what did you bring back into the, into the Oregon industry that maybe wasn't here already or that people were, were looking for? Well, I think originally it was uh, to go over there to look at small equipment. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, there, was, there were a lot of small wineries or a lot of people wanted to jump on the Oregon bandwagon. So they wanted to come in and they wanted to buy a little crusher distemmer, they wanted to buy a little press, and they wanted to see how we liked it. And, um, you know, I, I always used to uh, kind of joke when a person uh, uh, came in and said they wanted to get in the wine industry and what they need to do, and I'd always tell them to, uh, why don't you call and see if you can't get uh, an internship up at uh, Amity uh, um, and go out and do a crush with them and be out on the crush pad with the bees in the rain and then tell me if you still really like it. Because a lot of people, when they first got into it, thought it was you know, Humphrey Bogart sitting at a table drinking a glass of wine. They thought that that's what it was. And uh, it's hard work. It's hard work. And it'd be hard for me, because I, I, I don't like yellow jackets. So, and they're all over the place. So uh, it, it's hard work, and it takes, uh, uh, it's a labor of love. Mm -hmm. You gotta love what you're doing. Mm -hmm. you, you brought up uh, 2020 already. Uh, tell me about, let's talk about the, the pandemic first of all, and tell me about the sort of the, the effects that it had on, on your work and, and your business and, and the effects you saw it having on, on the industry from, from your perspective. Well, from my perspective, uh, we, were not, we were not hit so much. Um, we were deemed essential. So, uh, uh, of course, we had to have the protocols, the, you know, the six foot, uh, the masks, the sanitizing. We had to do all that, but um, realistically, our business didn't change. Um, one of the things that did change was volumes um, because they no longer had a place to sell their wine. So, most of the impact had to do with the, uh, the wineries. So, the pandemic for us, didn't affect us as much, but to my customers it did because it took uh, one of the biggest venues for most of them uh, for selling their wine. Mm -hmm. Because not a lot of people go to uh, 
um, grocery outlet and buy a $50 bottle of wine. And that's what a lot of the uh, Oregon wineries have been based on, um, you know, for all these years. Mm -hmm. The real problem came, um, you know, later on in the year with the fires. Mm -hmm. And I think that was um, something that was really, really kind of, uh, they didn't need another problem. Uh, a lot of wineries didn't make any wine at all. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them uh, harvested what they thought they could do and did whatever they could to fix it. So not only did you have a drop in sales, um, but you didn't have any grapes to produce. So what do I do with my, my people? I need grapes to keep them occupied. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, through uh, different grants and different things going on, I think a lot of them, I haven't heard of any of them that have just had to bail. Mm -hmm. um, so most of them are, are continuing to go. And maybe, maybe on the bright side, a lot of these wineries had inventory that they could sell. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe it's time to take a look at getting that inventory down. So maybe it was kind of uh, uh, a godsend to be able to, to get rid of some of your inventory. At least you were able to do that. Um, not that anybody ever wanted that, uh, that fire. Mm -hmm. um, we actually happened to be at Detroit Lake um, that weekend, Labor Day weekend. Uh, my family had rented a house in Detroit. And of course, we'd sit there by the, by the lake, and we saw that plume of smoke over the hill, and they closed down one leg of the lake because they were going to use the planes to come in and pick up uh, buckets of water. And the next day, it was still in the same place. Didn't even think about it. Mm -hmm. And we left that uh, Monday morning early because we didn't want to fight the, the vacation traffic back. And that morning, or later that evening or the next morning, they evacuated. Detroit and it was gone. And that's been our family place for years. Mm -hmm. So some of these things that get destroyed by fires uh, takes way too long to come back. Mm -hmm. Way too long. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't know too many people that actually lost uh, a lot of significant vineyards. Sure, sure they lost the harvest, but mm -hmm. uh, we all got to be optimistic um, that uh, this was something that isn't going to happen all the time. Um, unfortunately, I think, I think we're seeing some changes in our climate. Um, when I was growing up, it seemed like uh, we had on and off rain almost all year. You know, we, we might not have as much in July and August, but you'd still have that nice, refreshing downpour in June. Uh, look at it now, there isn't even rain in, in sight in April. Mm -hmm. They already have drop, drop conditions in certain parts of Oregon already. So it's, it's time for us to kind of all take a look at uh, some of the things that, that we do as individuals to try to uh, figure out ways to uh, not have Santa Rosa happen. I got a lot of friends down in Santa Rosa, mm -hmm. and I would get real old every year to have to evacuate mm -hmm. or have to sit in your house and wait for that uh, knock on your door at 2 in the morning. Mm -hmm. So uh, we need to be a little bit more proactive in some of the things that we do. Um, brush clearing, uh, maybe going along some of the power lines and making sure that, that those are in good shape. And you know, all these kinds of things uh, can happen. 
And uh, fortunately, not a lot of people died. Mm -hmm. But it very well could have, mm -hmm. as fast as that, that uh, went. So I'm hoping that we don't have another one of those. Yes, I think we all are hoping that, <laughs> for sure. Um, tell me about the role that you and, and Crush to Seller played during the fires, obviously with the lab component of your work. T tell me about sort of w w what was needed from you in those weeks. What, 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 was, what were you providing? Well, one of the big things was, was uh, different treatments. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, it's up in the air whether or not you can actually completely take out smoke. I don't know. I'm not an expert. Um, there are a lot of different formulas. People have came up a lot of different carbons, a lot of different enzymes, uh, different protocols to do what you can. And I'm sure there was some wine that was just so smoke tainted that there was nothing you could do. But there might have been some stuff that was, that was marginal mm -hmm. that you might be able to repair good enough and, and uh, uh, sell it as, as an offline. Mm -hmm. You know, you wouldn't want to put something with uh, um, any, kind of, uh, any kind of taint in it at all in an upper end wine. Because the people that are spending $75 on a bottle of wine, that's what they look for. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they want to make sure that that wine doesn't have any flaws. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was, it was providing uh, uh, lots of carbon, lots of different enzymes. Um, they had a lot of different podcasts and a lot of different uh, things on the internet on how to treat wine. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was a big deal, was, was just funneling everything that they needed um, uh, to do the best they could. And obviously, that you mentioned Santa Rosa, you mentioned California has had this issue for, for years. Was it something you were prepared for in terms of knowing what, what was going to be asked for, or were you kind of scrambling along with winemakers to find what people were going to need? Well, it was mainly uh, scrambling. Um, but some of the vendors already had gone through it um, with uh, down in Santa Rosa, so they kind of knew what products uh, worked, what products didn't, uh, what might help. Um, so a lot of that was uh, taken care of, and realistically, most of us kind of should have taken a look at it to a certain degree with looking what's been happening in Southern Oregon over the last few years. Um, we're becoming drier. Um, I think we probably get about the same amount of rain every year. It's just in a short period of time. Then when it stops, it just stops. Mm -hmm. And so you get all this undergrowth going from the rains, and then all of a sudden it grows, 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 and then no rain, it dies and dries out, and then you're ready for a match or a chain off a tractor. or It doesn't take a lot at, at that point. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, I think a lot of it uh, is is due to some of the changes that that have happened, and I don't know if if it's cyclical. I don't know because uh, I'm not an expert at that. I don't know if mankind did it. I, I I'm not even going to go into that battle. All I know is that the weather today is different than it was when I was growing up. Uh, I haven't moved more than 20 blocks in my life, with the exception of the one year. Uh, at Oregon State, so you know my my uh, my area hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. It's the surroundings that have, mm -hmm. and uh, that that gets that gets a little scary. And then you, even thinking about having a bad fire on the coast, mm -hmm. I go down on the coast and it's always rainy to me. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
we need to take a look at some of the things that, that we do and what we can do to uh, uh, prevent whatever accidents we can. We're never going to be able to stop it. You can't stop lightning. You can't stop. But you certainly can stop some things. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the, the biggest changes you've seen in, in Oregon wine since you became part of it. Uh, obviously, it's grown. But aside from that, what are the other changes you've seen? What, 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 what looks different about Oregon wine now than it did in, in the mid-90s? Well, when I, when I first started doing this in at Panther Creek, one of the things that they had was uh, uh, natural cork, unfiltered, unfined. Mm -hmm. Over the years, it's gone to twist cap, it's gone to artificial cork. You know, uh, back in the 90s, if you told somebody they needed to use an artificial cork, they'd tell you you're crazy. Um, if you told them that, that you wanted to put a screw cap on it, they'd tell you crazy because you got to hear the pop of the bottle when you uncork it. So, you know, those kinds of things uh, have changed. Uh, a lot of the upper end wineries are never going to change that cork format, mm. but there's a lot of call for that twist cap mm. for a lot of wines, and it's a lot safer, it's a lot cheaper. So a lot of these people that are doing uh, um, the volumes have changed to that. Mm -hmm. And then of course, who would ever thought of cans? Uh, I would have never think, thought about getting uh, sparkling wine in a can, or even a Pinot in a can, uh, or a Pinot Gris in a can. I would have never thought, mm -hmm. no, <laughs> you're crazy. Uh, I remember when Copa Divino came up with the little cups, mm -hmm. and they had those little one-serving cups with cellophane on top of them. And uh, I thought, what a unique idea, but you know, how do you market that? And I guess they had stands uh, down in uh, uh, Miami Beach, and they'd have an in cap like at a 7 Eleven store, and they just clean out. Plastic cup, throw it away, it won't break. So, you know, all these kinds of uh, little things have changed to try to find uh, avenues into the market. Mm -hmm. And I think that gets. Uh, to be another part of their marketing strategy is how do I do things a little different than everyone else? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, just like me, I have to continue to evolve, continue to find different markets. And so with some of the growth and some of the big guys like with A to Z, uh, Union Wine Company, Union Wine Company in particular, uh, how fast they've grown for being so small or for being a small uh, entity. I can remember when Ryan Harms was the was the winemaker at Tory Moore, you know. And now all of a sudden, they got this facility and a bottling line in a separate, separate area. So, uh, and kicking out cans. Mm -hmm. And I'm mean, just, it just boggles my mind to think that we're actually to this point. Mm -hmm. But we have to, we all have to evolve. We all have to find a, a way to, uh, to make ourselves stand out a little bit different. Mm -hmm. I know that Ken Wright, for years, everything was barrel select. You would come in, you buy a future, you would pick which barrel you want, and you got wine out of that barrel. So that was kind of a, a technique of his. Uh, uh, different parts of vineyards, all these different things people use as a, as a selling uh, point. Whether or not it makes any difference, who knows? But it is a, it is a story. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of uh, making wine is a story. Mm -hmm. And um, you got to just continue to find new ways to make new stories 
and I think uh, I think Oregon's just uh, you know going to continue to grow. We're still uh, uh, we're still young compared to uh, California and parts of the rest of the country. Uh, but what are we number three in the nation? Three or four? Yeah, it goes, back, it goes back and forth. Yeah. So uh, you know we've we've got a good spot. Um, we've got a good niche in that we're the only ones who can really do Pinot right. So. Uh, we just need to continue to explore how do we continue to uh, uh, exploit Oregon and also include Southern Oregon because they got their own little own little thing going on down there which has nothing to do with Pinot. So I know when uh, Earl at Albacella started his, you know, with Spanish varietals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, who would ever thought you were going to do Spanish varietals in Roseburg, you know. Uh, but they've got their own little following down there of all these different varietals that we don't do well up here. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's important for this industry to uh, uh, focus on what we can do as a whole, not necessarily um, um, keep uh, Pinot as the only thing we do, because there are a lot of people uh, whose Pinot isn't is their favorite. Mm -hmm. My wife's happened to be Syrah. So, um, Pinot people uh, are definitely out there, and they do not—they uh, do not waver any. You look at what uh, Linfield's done with uh, with the uh, festival they have every year. So uh, there are people all over the world coming to that. So uh, that's never going to change. But I think in order for us to evolve, we need to continue to expand uh, Oregon's offerings. Mm -hmm. And I, I, this is one thing I need to throw out about when we were talking about the fires and stuff and the climate change. And I was at a show in uh, uh, Penticton, BC, in the Okanagan Valley, and that's their big wine grape growing. And I went to a show up there because I have some friends up there. And one of, the, one of the guys was telling us, yeah, you just wait. Not too many years down the future, Okanagan is going to be the place to grow Pinot because it's gonna to be too hot in Oregon. And, and this has been, that's been 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So somebody kinda of had that thought that there was gonna be this increase in, in temperature and dryness working up the coast. But you know, I took it as a grain of salt, you know what you're talking about. You know, it always rains in Oregon. <laughs> You talked a little bit about some of the changes at Crush to Seller that you talked about kind of the e-commerce, e-commerce. What else do you see as you look ahead for, for you and for your business? What do, what do you hope uh, Crush to Seller looks like in the coming years and what do you hope your role is? Well, I hope my role is diminishing. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the things about uh, starting one of my own was to uh, uh, get it where I needed to feel comfortable about it and, and back off. Mm -hmm. um, I've got the employees to do it. Uh, I just don't have a lot of hobbies, so, uh, and I love the industry. So, uh, you know, I, I truly hope to be able to slowly back off, because if I'm there, the kids ain't going to learn. Mm -hmm. So it's important for me to, to let go and let the kids learn. Uh, one, of the, one of the things about Crush the Cellar is my, my office in back, which is great because now the new guy, the, the kids have got to uh, uh, make their own contacts. They got to make their own uh, relationships with company, uh, with the customers. And I don't even know a lot of them anymore. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I know the people that, that I did business with all these years, but I don't know their new ones. I don't know their, their uh, uh, new helpers or new seller masters. Uh, that's their job. Mm -hmm. And in order for Crush the Seller to carry on, they need to establish their own contacts. They, they need people to come in and feel like they're at home. Mm -hmm. I'm just coming in to visit Danielle, or I'm just coming in to visit Tyler. Mm -hmm. um, we want to get that feeling that, that that's the reason why they're in. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are doing a very good job at that. As far as growth for us, um, there's been a lot of things tossed out there. Um, mobile services, uh, see what else did they bring in. I know mobile services, they, they decided to kind of uh, put on the back burner for the time being. They were going to try to do a um, um, smoke analysis test in, in Newburgh. Mm -hmm. um, they couldn't get the machine done in time. So that kind of went by the wayside, but that doesn't mean that, that some of those other machines will not be up there in order for a person to do, get some um, uh, tests for vial, uh, volatile acidity, for, for smoke, some of these other things um, that aren't on the beaten path. But if I look at the future, the way we're kind of talking about things drying out, uh, this fire thing probably is not going to be isolated. Uh, hopefully it isn't all the time, but I think we'll probably have another, uh, another one of these sometime in the future. And if we have the tools here in Oregon to be able to take a look at different ways to treat the wine, um, we're just a step ahead rather than being a step behind. I mean, a lot of this uh, analytical stuff uh, it doesn't just, it isn't fly off the shelf. Mm -hmm. It's got to be specially made. And unfortunately, uh, uh, it wasn't quite uh, ready when we needed it. So, uh, but there's next time, hopefully not, but there is next time and just gives us the tools. But it's, for us, the big thing for me is to uh, continue to grow the education part. Mm -hmm. uh, have more seminars. Uh, have people, have uh, suppliers come in and show people how to use specific products. Um, how to do tannin trials, how to do clarification trials. Because a, a lot of the education hasn't been there. There are, there are uh, you know, quite a few people with degrees, mm -hmm. I, I will admit that, but there are a lot of people who just learned from grandpa. Mm -hmm or the person who taught him before taught him. And he, and he may be doing it right, he may not be. Or there may be new techniques to do. So it's, it's, it's teaching uh, uh, the Oregon wine industry uh, uh, more about uh, the products that they're using mm -hmm. and why to use them and when to use them. Mm -hmm. And so I've already gotten commitments out of most of the uh, um, wine suppliers that they'd be willing to uh, uh, come in uh, every other month and do some sort of uh, hands-on um, training with them. So, uh, um, and that might end up going into that whole smoke thing too. Mm -hmm. you, you, I just never know. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the educational part for Crusher Seller is going to be a big thing as far as what I want to see um, in Crusher Seller. Mm -hmm. uh, the rest of it will slowly come as long as you're diligent as long as you do what you're supposed to do, as long as you uh, continue to follow up and tell people what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, that will continue to grow. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I want to give back to them. Uh, and I've got a lot of tools with, with uh, Lafort and Scott Labs and you know, all these different places that have experts in these fields. Hey, bring them up. Bring them up. You don't have to bring them up every day, but once this once this pandemic gets over, why don't you send them up? We'll have a we'll have a one day seminar or a, um, a hands on uh, explanation of uh, how to do trials. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people a lot of people haven't ever added tannins. Now that's another new thing. You know, whoever thought that uh, you know I always thought wine was this uh, natural juice. Mm -hmm. But uh, surprise how many different things they put in to make it do what they want it to do. And uh, it gets back into that same thing as uh, unfiltered, unfined. Mm -hmm. You know, after, after you have a few bottles go bad, because you still had some bacteria going in there, um, the, the thought of having that little bit of sediment at the bottom of your glass isn't as appealing later down the road than it was when we were first emerging, mm -hmm. because it, it was unique. Mm -hmm. We were still emerging, um, so you know. Uh, by and large, most people are filtering. Mm -hmm. cool. So, all the questions that I have for you, Terry, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? Well, I'm glad. I, well, number one, I'm glad that um, um, some of the Oregon uh, universities mm -hmm. are taking advantage of uh, of the Oregon wine industry. Mm -hmm. um, the first contact I had uh, with the university working with the wine industry happened to be at Oregon State mm -hmm. uh, when Barney Watson was there. And of course Barney was another one of those that was uh, uh, really helpful to me uh, to get me going um, because he knew in order for the Oregon wine industry to grow, they needed product locally. They couldn't wait two days to get their stuff. Uh, by and large, the, the Oregon wine industry doesn't think a lot ahead. They wake up in the morning and they say, I'm bottling today, I need a filter. Um, and, and that's just, uh, and that gets back in that whole cyclical thing. Mm -hmm. if, if you're running production all the time and every day is the same, you usually don't forget those things. But with the ups and downs of the, of the wine industry, uh, sometimes it's hard to remember what you're doing. Because yesterday you were looking for something to do. So uh, he, was, he was one of the ones, and, and uh, uh, a lot of people have told me that uh, the Oregon wine industry wouldn't have grown as fast as it did if I wouldn't have been around. Um, and that's an awful big compliment, mm -hmm. awful big compliment. Mm -hmm. But after Barney left Oregon State, then Chemeketa was started. Mm -hmm. So it was good to see that program going and you know we have the guys from uh, Chemeketa coming in once or twice a week getting a different product mm -hmm. and now with Linfield um, taking the next step and you know with uh, uh, Domain Serene helping out with uh, some grant money because um, these programs aren't cheap um, it'll give an opportunity for more people to actually learn mm -hmm. learn more about it and it's not just making wine, because that's only one part of it. Mm -hmm. The hard part is selling it. And uh, when you have when you have five or six hundred pinots, how's Fred Meyer pick out which one they're going to pick? Mm -hmm. um, you got to have a good sales team out there. You got to have uh, a good group of restaurants. And that's one of the things that 
that for a lot of the wineries really suffered is when they backed off on the restaurants and uh, that was the only place that they sold their wine. Mm -hmm. They had either their wine club or uh, upper end uh, uh, restaurants or wine bars. Mm -hmm. So when that was gone, then it was just kind of So, uh, now I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> but no, there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it than just making the wine, making a quality wine. It's, it's getting it out there, getting the winemaker to go out and uh, uh, explain about the wine. Uh, tell the story about the wine, because a lot of it is in the story you're making. Um, I know I've watched a few of them talk, and and you're just going, God, I bet you that wine really tastes good. Because they just know how to talk. Mm -hmm. They know how to talk. And you need to have good marketing people that can do that. So uh, you need to have good label designers. How do I make that uh, bottle, bottle pop off the shelf? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different avenues to, to uh, the wine industry that aren't necessarily making wine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's uh, uh, one of the big focuses we need to take a look at is, is uh, uh, some of those other branches mm -hmm. to make sure that uh, it's getting marketed. And that's one of the things that the big guys can do. Uh, with Jackson family coming in, it gave us exposure nationwide really quick. Because mm -hmm. this is a Jackson family. So, uh, you know, some of, these, some, of these, uh, um, some of these buyouts have been for the good. Even though sometimes it, it breaks my heart because these are people that I grew up with. Um, but at the same time, I know that it's needed in this industry in, in order for it to grow. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Terry. We appreciate this. And congratulations on your 25th year of, of, of selling wine products. Well, thank you for, for inviting me. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's really an honor. And when I, when I look back at, at starting something that I had no idea what I was doing, um, in 2003, I was recognized by the Oregon Wine Grape Growers. Mm -hmm. And then I forgot what year it was that uh, the Wine Walk of Fame by Ponzi Vineyards put a brick out there at, uh, um, at the Ponzi uh, place there in Dundee. Um, it kind of made, kind of made me realize that maybe Terry did do something. Um, and Rob Stewart was the one who uh, inducted me. Mm -hmm. Uh, who happens to be my next door neighbor? Also. <laughs> so uh, uh, he gets he gets nighttime deliveries. <laughs> so, but anyway, I, uh, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure to do this, and it's been an honor to work with the wine industry. Uh, the best group of people you could probably ever work with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And thanks. Absolutely, thank you so much, and we appreciate your time and your stories and, and your candor. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.